personal healthcare companion. Please remember, it is fun to be smart. Have fun. Well, thank you so much, Baymax. Yes, that was indeed the beloved Baymax from Big Hero 6. Compliments of the voice of Baymax, uh, the incredible actor, voiceover actor, uh, stage performer and comedian Scott Adsit. Uh, I had the pleasure of talking with Scott again uh, for, I think, the fifth or sixth time the other day uh, in preparation of uh, not only the Oscars for Big Hero 6, which is nominated for Best uh, Feature, uh, at the animated feature at Academy Awards, but also uh, for the home video release, which is coming up. Uh, digital is coming out, I think, this week. And then the full collector edition DVD Blu-rays later on in the month, and we'll be talking more about that later. But it's always good to have Baymax telling us to have fun and have a good day. So welcome, everybody, to Behind the Lens. This is now, what, show number six. We're halfway into February. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias. I'm here alone today. I've been abandoned by my two co-hosts who are off doing other things, Um, Chad Miller and Greg. I know I'm going to screw up Greg's name. (laughs) Srizavazdi. And he's going to shoot me for this. But they will both be here next week when we talk Oscars and Spirit Awards, as will Josh Idakoff, a projectionist uh, at Idakoff Screening Room, and part of the Idakoff legacy that has been so instrumental in the movie industry uh, for everybody on both sides of the camera. So you're stuck with me today with a little help from Baymax. Um, it's an exciting show today. I've been looking forward to this uh, ever since I interviewed my two guests who are going to be calling in. At 11.15 today, we've got Jonathan Narducci calling in. Jonathan has just directed a documentary called Love Me about mail-order brides, Ukrainian mail-order brides, and the American men who seek them out. Uh, It is funny. It is at times raucous. At times you hang your head and you shake it in just absolute disbelief. But it is also extremely enlightening and informative. So Jonathan will be calling in 11.15. That will be a joy, especially when I get him to talk about shooting 400 hours of footage. And at 11.30, I am beyond excited to have Jane Clark calling in. We've already been warned about how many times we can say the title of this film. She is writer-director of this very cool blend of thriller, horror, um, girl-buddy picture, called crazy bitches okay that was once we got six more passes to go (laughs) through the course of the hour it is absolutely hilarious there are some great performances in there and some incredible production values which you as you will hear is very important to jane as is how the the film came to be but before our guests start calling in let me just take a moment here To go back to Big Hero 6 for a second, Um, as part of the pre-Oscar coverage, I had a chance to revisit again with the co-directors, Don Hall and Chris Williams. Don and Chris, I have known them each for a number of years. Don, uh, we first met back when he did Winnie the Pooh. He directed uh, Winnie the Pooh, which was a hand-drawn film championed by John Lasseter over at Walt Disney Animation Studios. Chris Williams... Uh, He previously directed Bolt, which I think to this day is still a very underrated uh, animation film. 
But together, they have given us Big Hero 6, which is, it is a new classic. Let's be honest. It is a new classic that will be here for generations uh, of kids and adults alike to enjoy. So we had a chance to uh, hook up and talk about a number of things, starting with a prediction that I made. So nice of you to join us. Thank you. So happy to see you yet again. We were counting the number of times we've been together. It's a lot. But she called the Oscar nomination back when we were just showing the clips in the theater. Uh, You did. Mm -hmm. I remember. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're right. It's always very gratifying when somebody says you were right, and it's a director the caliber of of Chris Williams. So, you know, part of the joy of Big Hero 6 is that they have taken, they've pushed the envelope. Um, And a lot of that is due to, as the boys will talk about, and you'll hear throughout the program today, a lot of that is due to John Lasseter, um, who kept encouraging them to go to places they hadn't gone before. And, but part of the big thing right now is this momentum dealing with Oscars and the fact this is, first nominations uh, for both of them. It has been a wild ride. Uh, When I first saw clips of the film back in July, it wasn't even finished. Um, So have they even had a chance with all the promotion, with the premieres, with the international premieres, have they even had a chance to sit back and realize what was happening? Here's what they had to say. As this has started to take shape since the theatrical release, did you see the momentum building? Could you feel it? Did it become a sensory experience for you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's it's been a little strange just because the release has been so staggered. You know, to us, it feels like it's been, you know, decades since it was released. You know, simply the Tokyo premiere and then the the domestic release. But it's a long rollout. It's a long rollout. But it does, you have, you know, the good thing is it does feel like momentum has kind of carried it through those times. Uh, in between, I guess, yeah. you know, trips and stuff like that. And, and, you know, little things happen along the way where you're like, wow, okay, I think we've made it into some popular culture zeitgeist. Like uh, uh, some Christmas carolers came to my house um, on Christmas Eve and, and just a bunch of neighbor folks. Mm-hmm. And, and um, they they sang and then afterwards they said, thank you for Big Hero 6. And then they did the fist bump thing. Uh-huh. And That's it was cute. just like the coolest Christmas gift somebody could ever hmm. give you. You know, it was really cool. And it really started to happen around the time of the release, you know, because up until then we're busy working on the film and mm-hmm. you get your head down. Right. And you're in this, feel this insular sort of environment because everything is about getting the movie to be as good as it can be. Um, but around the time of the release we started feeling good about 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 how it was going to play. And and really for me the, the most important moment was opening weekend, going to a theater, sitting with an audience and, and feeling the reaction. Mm-hmm hearing people laughing straight away, hearing them get choked up at the emotional parts. That's when I knew, oh, I think there's something about this movie that's going to touch a nerve everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the Baymax character especially, there's this purity to him and this goodness that crosses borders. You know what I mean? Everybody responds to that kind of selflessness. And, um, and so, yeah, we love those kind of characters growing up, Bambi and Dumbo and those, those sorts of characters. And, and, and Baymax is, is, is one of those, a really sweet, mm-hmm. naive, gullible, guileless, I should say, character. Um, and so, yeah, I think that he's been a big part of, of the reason why it's become mm-hmm. this big thing. And I really think, I, I, I feel the need to hear Baymax again, Brian. 
I think everybody needs to hear Baymax again after that. Hello, I am Baymax, your personal healthcare companion. Please remember, it is fun to be smart. Have fun. And this is my own personal plush Baymax. You can get your own as well. Um, they have various sizes, but apparently the size larger than this, as Scott Adsit was even saying, they're sold out even in all the Disney parks. Nobody can get the bigger ones. But these are still available. Every kid, big or small, wants their own Baymax. I love my Baymax. <laughs> and nobody gets their hands on this. But it's, it is the charm of this little marshmallow fluff that everyone has fallen in love with. But another part of Baymax is also, as we've been talking about in recent weeks, the importance of color, especially in, an, in animated movies. And one of the interesting things that you're going to hear Don and Chris talk about now is the use going into the purples again. Purple is becoming a very predominant and prevalent color in animation of late. And what's interesting is that Typically, purple, especially in the Marvel world, which is where Big Hero 6 originated, was a little, a tiny little thing in the vaults of Marvel that sparked Don Hall's creativity. Purple's typically been linked to villains, but now it's being turned into the sign of power and goodness. So let's hear them talk about the use of color from Honey Lemon and her, print, her pink to Wasabi and his Wasabi Green. It is, yeah. I, I mean, and, but before I can go into the depth of it, you know, actually, there was a version of the team very early on that was um, going to be a little more found objecty, as far as like a little more ragtag, a little more thrown together, um, with stuff coming from junkyards and that kind of thing, and and it was going to be a much more muted palette for this team, and and I, I'm, I mean, I'm the one that started pushing the art team to go down in that direction. I think everybody was, was satisfied with it, but I, you know, I started wondering about it if that's the, the right approach because it just didn't seem quite as fun. And, and to Chris's point, it's like there, you know, there's some darker elements to the, right. to the movie. Well, should we balance it out with a little more um, saturation and lightness? And so then I, I kind of reversed course and said, okay, let's rethink this. Yeah. And we started looking at a lot of, um, Japanese TV, TV shows from the 60s, you know, the precursors to the, uh, um, uh, it's called Common Rider, but uh, the, the Power Rangers and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. So we started really doing a lot of research in that area. And, and they always seem to have that kind of brighter color and a more fun palette to them. And so pushed the art team to, to look at that. And, and um, they, Lorelei um, Bove, who's, who did a lot of color work on the film, you know, she just, you know, I gave her the team and said, you know, come up with some really interesting, interesting palette for these guys. And I liked that it would connect to, you know, like Wasabi, at least because Wasabi's green and keep it mm -hmm. kind of great, you know, and keep it themed like that. Um, but she chose really interesting, you know, uh, combinations of things like that kind of vermilion orange red mixed with a purple. Mm -hmm. You just don't see that. Or even Honey Lemon where it's that really kind of magenta with a, a really happy, bright orange, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, they're just odd, and in a great way, you know. And, and what I loved about it is it, it was giving our team a really um, signature look, because the world of San Francisco was going to have a lot more muted tones to it. Because it, again, we're going for a very realistic palette, right? Realistic mm -hmm. look, and obviously, there's some really saturated parts with the neon and those big, goofy 
signs and stuff like that. So it was going to be colorful, yes, but but I think it was important for the team to pop against all that. So they have very saturated, bright colors. It just made it more fun. You know, it looked, they started to really look like a team, and they looked, started to just look like you know, if I was a kid, I'd want to play with those action figures. You know, not in a I want to sell action figures kind of way, but in a I know what would appeal to me when I was that that age. And so, but I love the fact that Heroes uniform is basically black and purple and and those are non-traditional colors even in the in marvel yeah essentially purple is is delegated to villains in the marvel universe and and to me what i kind of like this is just my own dorky geek philosophy but because this is sort of an alternate universe and it's it is a um that purple is actually used for the good guys in this film you know um, and there are also times where colors used to support the emotional story. Right. Like you probably caught the Baymax's color the, of the, the armor, the red armor mm-hmm. is also used on Tadashi's right. scooter. So we're trying to have those those connections between Baymax and, and Tadashi as well. Well, and you heard them mention the the magenta, the pinkish uh, that's in, in, in Honey Lemon's costume. That's also a very prevalent color that's taking place right now in some other films out there, most notably the voices from Marjane Satrapi. Uh, um, I adore Marjane. She is the woman behind, the writer-director behind Persepoli, behind uh, Chicken with Plums. And with the voices, it stars Ryan Reynolds. It's a very dark, dark, dark comedy. And anybody that knows... Marjane's work expects the dark comedy. She also is going into that pink and pink and orange territory. Her reason, though, is totally different than the boys with Big Hero 6. She goes with pink because she really likes pink. So, John Narducci will be with us in a moment. We're going to take a break right now and be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back. And with with me right now is the incredible John Narducci. John, are you there? I am. Thanks for having me. I am so thrilled to have you. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I mean, we had a great time talking about this film uh, the other day because, as I said, I knew nothing about it. Most people have a very strange connotation of what the mail-order bride business is. For me, I didn't realize it was such a big deal today. I was still in that Hallmark Lifetime movie channel, Daphne Zuniga mail-order bride telemovie. Uh, mentality, but that's not at all what's going on in the world out there, is it? No, no, it's a it's a you know digital dating world now, and just like Match. dot com and Tinder and all these other you know dating sites have kind of become commonplace for us here in the states. That's kind of also become um, more common in international dating. So it's like email order brides now instead of just mail order brides. <laughs> I like that email order brides. Yeah. <laughs> so now for a director, this is not exactly what you would think of as your first choice for a feature film or documentary. What is now? I know the answer to this, but our listeners and our viewers won't know it. Um, what led you to this particular subject? 
The subject um, was introduced to me, you know, 12 years ago through kind of like a, you know, spam email, basically, that I received from one of the companies that we ended up um, going on tour with. And it was so unique and, and, and bizarre at the time to see this kind of like, you know, the genesis of online dating, basically, um, but with Russian women who wanted to marry me, just, you know, with the click of a button. So um, that was kind of when I first started thinking about this as a film. And then, you know, as things have changed in our society, you know, dating online has become a little bit more common. It kind of was like perfect idea because I really wanted to do something that was kind of accessible to everyone. Um, you know, everyone has these ideas of wanting to find love. They have a reference point for it. But I also wanted to have a subject that was kind of, everyone had a preconceived notion about this subject. And so there was something to change. There was an idea to change there. And so it was something I was able to use as a filmmaker to kind of like take people on a journey or, you know, entertain them a little bit as we, you know, kind of develop the characters um, and follow them through this path of, you know, trying to find love. And what's really interesting is finding love is not exclusive to anybody, as you have found out through how many miles did you log traveling back and forth to the Ukraine? Oh, I was a 1K, 100,000-mile flyer two years in a row. So this <laughs> was quite a, quite a few miles, those two years of shooting this film. <laughs> okay, well, the, now the big question I'm sure everybody wants to know is, did you get to use all the frequent flyers, mi flyer miles yet? <laughs> Well, actually, yes, I used him right away on <laughs> my producer <laughs> to fly him with me. So it's just another way for us to save money. Well, and, and when you're doing an indie low-budget, no-budget, especially a documentary, every penny you save, go... Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's it was not, you know, I self-financed the film, so um, it was a little stressful at times, you know. It's like, it adds up, and when you get into, you know, this is my first documentary as a feature and so when i really didn't know how long it would take to finish the film and so editorial kind of you know probably goes on a little bit longer than anyone ever thinks and um you know you're never quite done when you you know you can tweak this perfect that and at some point you just have to be done with it because you you're out of money right <laughs> <laughs> well and you know i'm glad you brought that up uh, about self-financing because it's, and as a matter of fact, I was just talking with my video and editor, Lydia, earlier about this, uh, about Zach Braff's movie, where he went and he popped it out on Kickstarter and created the huge furor about, here's somebody who's working, who has assets, who has access, and is seeking dollars from other people. Then we have Kevin Costner, who ponied up the money to get his film Black or White made, in addition to others that he's done in the past, Mel Gibson, the same thing. What is what is it that makes you, as a filmmaker, as a director, how strongly do you have to believe in something to make that leap to self-finance as opposed to going other routes? Yeah, I think it's, well, I think there's, you know, there's there's good and bad things to both ways of doing it. You know, you give up a lot of control if it's not your money. Ultimately, it's not yours if you're, you know, you become a director for hire. You know, and I don't like that idea, you know, and I'm a businessman, you know, as much as I am a filmmaker. And I think that that's not necessarily the common, you know, you know, way that people think about filmmakers. But, you know, if you want to continue to make films, you probably have to keep them under a certain amount of money and you have to put them in on budget just like you do any other project in the world. So, you know, to me, it, 
taking ownership financially kind of goes with taking ownership of the film. I don't know. This is like that just makes sense to me at this point in my life, you know. And I think the bigger a film gets, the less able you are to you know necessarily mm-hmm. finance everything on your own. But it really shows you know potential investors that you know this is something that you're going to be careful about their money and spend it the way that you would. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think you really have to believe in your film to put your own money into it. But shouldn't you believe in everything you do? I don't know. It's just kind of common sense to me to put my money into it. Mm-hmm. And you know? putting your own money into it also, does that make you more judicious when you're shooting, when you're formulating, when you're making these 100,000 miles worth of trips two years in a row back and forth to the Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're, you're, and, and that's where the that's where it kind of comes to a fault, right? It's like, you start to get stressed out about what you're spending because, you know, and sometimes that can limit your creative ability because you're, you know, you put the limitations of money first before you do what necessarily the best creative option would be. And so I think both have, you know, good purposes, but I definitely felt that stress personally and will continue to feel stress as a filmmaker because, you know, the first thing I think about is how much something's going to cost. Mm-hmm. And then I think about, you know, if I should really need that compared to what I can afford. And, you know, you're constantly making compromises. I don't think it matters how much money you have. You're always going to have to make a compromise <laughs> at some point, even if you're, you know, making a $200 million film. I'm sure that that person had to make some kind of compromise based on budget, even though it sounds ridiculous. It's just the way it, it is. And so, you know, I just it's just kind of... You know, you're just a little bit more aware of it, and it, it, it's both a blessing and a curse, I think. Well, and one thing you didn't compromise on was creating an interesting documentary due in large part to the selection of your subjects, shall we say, both the males and the corresponding fem- Ukrainian females. How do you go about, for those that don't know how this works and, and how you then put this together, how did you find the men who would be the subjects and the women in the Ukraine who would become subjects in this documentary? Well, the film, I I didn't cast the film like you would, um, I think most people usually find the characters of their film before they start shooting it. Well, that's not the way we did it. What we did is we kind of did a spray and pray kind of method. So actually, I met all of the men that were in my film and the women later, um, basically by going to Ukraine and going on what's called a romance tour, which is a, you know, a group-led tour for men who want to meet women from Ukraine. And they go on buses around the country and, and meet you know, a bunch of different women in every city. Now, was this so I just went on one of those and started shooting. And I shot as many people as quickly as I could and started to see who was the most interesting and what was happening with them. And then, you know, sometimes they'd meet a girl, and that's when we would get entry to meeting those, those women that are in the film. So it was kind of like just an exploration. <laughs> and it's a little crazy because, you know, you're sh- we shot like probably 100 different guys, of five of which are, you know, in the film. So it, it's, it's pretty chaotic to try to make a film that way, and I don't think I would ever do it again. But at the same time, I don't know how else you would make something like this film. Um, now, now, your you romance know, without- tour, was that through the group of Foreign Affair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went on these tours that is run by a foreign affair, which uh, has loveme.com's URL, um, which is the name of the film. And, um, yeah, that's their business model is they help people meet 
you know, via online, and then they take them over there to the countries where they're, you know, talking with these women um, to meet them. Well, and the guys that you ended up following, uh, you know, I'm just intrigued by the the selection that you got, and they did kind of just bubble to the surface as you were shooting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so weird because sometimes the most introverted guy who you, you know, have a hard time talking to will have the most insane story or the most spectacular thing happen to him and this like, you know, and when it comes to something that matters of the heart, you really can't predict anything. You know, it's like who's going to fall in love? Why are they going to fall in love? Why are they, if they're in love, period, you know? Um, who's going to maybe get taken advantage of and why they're going to get taken advantage of? And, you know, the guys that are going on these tours, for the most part, they've kind of run out of the options for, you know, dating domestically. And, you know, that could also lead to the type of guy that might not be the most outgoing or charming, you know, and so you really got to, like, continue down and really follow and keep up with them to see what's happening to really get to the core of the story. At least that's what what I discovered in making the film. Well, and that's one of the... I, I really like that you did that because you show us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We see the guys that go in with no expectations and they do find love. They have happy endings. Um, we see people who have preconceived notions that go in with very unrealistic fantasy expectations, and it's a disaster, and you just sit there and you want to just slap them upside the head as you're watching them. It's like, what were you thinking? Yeah. You show a slice of everything. You Nothing is, is you know, hands-off. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a slice of life, but that's what dating is. You know, I mean, everyone that dates knows what it is. I mean, especially when you're dating online. You put so much into, like, the idea of what's on the other end, you don't really know what that person's like because you're communicating, you know, via a text or a message or, you know, and then in this situation via, you know, a different language, a different cultural context. Um, you know, the, this, the way it is, is is kind of, you know, unhuman. So to show the failures and to show the successes is just like, the way it is in reality. I mean, there's a lot of failures and there's a lot of successes anywhere in dating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't think it would have been proper and, or entertaining if we had just shown, you know, a bunch of failures or if we had just shown a bunch of successes. You mm-hmm. know, I think you've got to have both sides of it to really get a feeling of, you know, matters of the heart. Now, your production values, with a documentary like this, most people think you just pick up a camera, you go and shoot. You have some really superlative production values here with your cinematography. You have some beautiful shots. And then Carol Marturi's editing is absolutely incredible. Did you work with, you know, when you were shooting, your cinematography, your editing? Was this culling it down as you went or did you wait till you got all 400 hours of film shot and then decide to look at this? I think we you know, honestly, we we finished shooting before we started editing. So, you know, it was you know the cinematography is just kind of second nature because it's what what I do. You know, and um, on a documentary, usually, I don't know if sometimes you have a trained cinematographer working on it at a at a certain budget point. But luckily, I, since I am a cinematographer before a director, I was able to do that. And, and then, it's a budget point you didn't have. 
So yeah, I mean, well, you know, I, I had allocated and saved money for the film, and so I had an idea. Of, obviously, I went about three times over what I was expecting to spend. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, and then it takes. I think it takes you know trusting somebody else and you know trusting Carol to you know take my vision and refine it and find what's best in it. You know, I really think that you need an editor to look at it with a, with a, an objective eye. And, you know, you have to find somebody that really understands what you want and trust in them as much as, you know, you, you can trust in anyone, really. Because, you know, if you don't have somebody that's on the same page as you or you're not communicating on aesthetics or pacing or all that kind of stuff, you know, and it's a lot of work. I mean, we worked at this and revised and, and changed it a hundred times, you know. Mm-hmm. and <clears throat> to make it have that kind of, you know, pacing where we really enjoyed it. And, you know, ultimately I got really lucky with Carol being able to do all this kind of stuff. Now, so, how, how, um, beneficial, how beneficial know, was I it having... I pretty blessed. How beneficial was it having Carol come in with a fresh eye? Was oh, she I mean, able to it, see storylines? You can't do... I mean, there's people that can do that stuff. But, you know, with a film like this, like, there was an there was a lot of, like, you know scenes and ideas, but you really need a fresh perspective because you get emotionally attached to things. You know, sometimes it's just a shot. Sometimes it's a whole person, you know, that you might have to cut out of the film, which, you know, in this situation, we had to cut out a lot of people. And, you know, you can't take away, you can't necessarily, as a director who's filming everything, look at it with an objective point of view because you have had these experiences and you've been in the trenches shooting it, and you're like, I spent two weeks with that person, and now we're going to cut the whole thing out. You know, and it's just like that goes back to the spending your own money kind of thing. You know, you just it kind of drives you nuts because you wasted all these trips to Ukraine. And you know, what's funny is actually most of the characters that are in our film, all we met all of them on the first trip to Ukraine, and I went five times. So. The four times following that were kind of just a waste. Uh, well, and I'm getting a cue that we have to take a break right now, John. If you want to hold on for one minute, sure. we'll be back to you. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City. Covering local news, politics, and community events. With sports by Mitch Chortkoff and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias, Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think Culver City Observer. Culver City Observer, a division of Arizona Newspaper Group, is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. I've got Jonathan Narducci on the line. We have been talking about Love Me, a documentary on mail-order brides. And I know I've got Jane Clark, the writer-director of Crazy Bitches, on hold. So I'm going to wrap up quickly with Jonathan here. Um, I know the film's coming out this Friday. Perfect Valentine film, John. Oh, yeah. It's a great film to watch with that special person. 
So you can see how lucky you are. <laughs> <laughs> and where – I know it's going to be on VOD. Is it going to be on all platforms? Is it just iTunes? Is it – No, it's, it's on all the platforms that you could think of. So iTunes, I think, is the main one that we're concentrating on. But, you know, it will be on Amazon and, and cable um, – uh, VOD as well. So in other words, I can go to my less than trustworthy Time Warner cable and find it on there. Yep, that's correct. <laughs> All right. Jonathan, and any DVD uh, plans for this one? Um, I, you know, I don't really think about those kind of things, so I don't really know. I guess I should, but um, hopefully, you know, and, you know, at some point, maybe in some theaters around every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jonathan, thank you so, so much. Everybody really, you're right, everybody needs to sit with their loved one or or the one they hate. And yeah. watch this uh, Friday the 13th, Valentine's weekend. Uh, Jonathan Narducci and Love Me. And our complete interview, we're going to have, a, I'm going to have a written form from the one that we did the other day with a review of the documentary will be out on my website, uh, Examiner and a bunch of other places uh, sometime this week. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Bye-bye. Bye. And there she is, the woman. Hello. The woman. Hello, Jane Clark. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm f- oh, I hear, I hear we have a little friend in the background. Yeah, I just put the rodent outside. Oh, uh, well, you know, today... Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. I mean, I'm sitting here with my plush Baymax, my plush Gruff from the new Disney animated Tinkerbell movie. You know, we have, nice. to, we have to have little creatures around us. Yeah, keeps you warm. So, we've already been warned. We have to limit the number of times we say the title of this film. Really? Yes, yes. Huh. I've already said. I, I, you know, it's not the first time we've run into things like this before, but I'm always a little, a little startled. You know, I, I was actually mortified and shocked. Yeah, but that's okay. Then that's okay. I've only said it twice. We can say it five more times. So we're going to say it again now. Jane Clark, the writer director of one of the craziest, most fun, and authentically heartwarming films for the Valentine weekend, Crazy Bitches. Sounds uh, sounds like a, the heartwarming and Valentine's and crazy don't really go together, does it? <laughs> <laughs> but once you see this film, it does. And this is a film, it's, it's predicated upon a lot of opposites. It's what we don't yeah. expect. How did you go come up with this idea and put this film together? Because I think it's fascinating the way you did this. Well, thanks. You know, I... Um I, I'm really interested as a writer in what makes everybody a, a complete person. You know, I um, you you come into a situation and you meet somebody and you make an instant judgment about who that person is, and then if you take the time to get to know them and you start, uh, you, you allow yourself to to realize the layers that they have. It either deepens your knowledge of them and what you thought they were, or it completely negates the first impression. And so it's it's sort of that idea that I was I was going for because I was originally inspired by a friend who um, we were having lunch and she showed me a uh, she said something to me that illustrated an insecurity but the way she said it was in a very vain way and it happened to tweak one of my own insecurities and it got me thinking about how 
we are so much of those two things and how women can sometimes forget what they're saying and forget the other person and use their words in a way that ends up hurting. And that's sort of the genesis, but out of it came this idea that, you know, I knew she wasn't trying to hurt my feelings. I knew that she was really saying it because she wasn't overly confident. So it was that, it was that duality that really interested me. And I think it's just at the base of it, human, it's just human, human makeup, you know? Mm -hmm. For those, for those that are listening, uh, the film, it's, it's a group of women, sorority sisters moving on in life from all walks of life, all different mentalities, ideologies, social strata. And as women do, they get very catty with each other. It's just a fact of, it's a fact of life. And slowly while they are on this lovely weekend retreat, they start dropping like flies. <laughs> and the fact that it takes place on, on a, this lovely little ranch location, um, flies are probably present with all the animals wandering around. So, Yeah, well, I can tell you flies were present at least while we were shooting. <laughs> One of the great things about this film, Jane, I know we talked about it, is when you have bodies that are dropping, you have bloodletting, you have different manner of madness, mayhem, and death. It becomes, to the observant eye, colors of red, colors of blood, body position, you know, corpse positioning. <laughs> you, you paid a lot of attention to these little details of minutia that add so much to the film. Well, yeah, thanks. I, you know, I, I really love detail. It's just part of the fun of it. And, you know, in all honesty, the script, which is, as it was shot, is very dense. I mean, there's a, a lot of material there that, you know, you're, you're going to want to go back and watch it again because the first time you're focusing on who's dying and why they're dying and who's doing it. The next time you already know who the killer is, you can sort of let it go, and the details will start you know, coming to the surface more, but I, I lost a lot of details when I was shooting because um, that I had incorporated into the original script because we just simply ran out of time. You know, you're shooting fast and you just don't have time to incorporate it, but those little things that, I mean, I really love the idea that somebody will go back and go, wait, I didn't see that last time. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really interesting uh, idea, or that's a really interesting um, thing that's happening in the background, or thing that's, that, that you, you know, we weren't made clearly aware of up front. Like, I like the subtlety of it. Um, so, yeah, I spend a lot of time trying to do things accurately. I think some of that came from also, you know, I, my first feature was a film called Methhead, and it's based on true stories, and I spent a lot of time with that film making sure the details were absolutely exact because I knew that if I didn't, anybody who had been through the addiction, I would, get ki- I would just get killed. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that I wanted those people to see the absolute authenticity of the film. And I think that that was training ground um, as I went forward into Crazy Bitches and other scripts I'm writing. I'm, I'm, I'm spending the time doing the research and spending the time thinking about the little connections, the small moments. Um, to give it that layered depth, I think it's, for me, it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And two of two of the most layered pieces of depth that I love are the colors of red for the various parts of the body that bleed and how the reds differentiate, and also the body positionings. 
of the corpses. <laughs> and I know you had somebody that helped you with that. Yeah, I mean, he, I, you he, know, he needs the, body, a shout the out. body positioning in some cases um, was a fun, creative choice. You know, just and it and it had to do with where we were shooting and the limitations. But I have a special effects guy, a, vis- a visual effects guy. He works out of Canada. His name is Chris Orchard, and uh, Orchard Studios. He's an amazing visual effects guy because he, like me, he really cares about the details. And there were some things that I I didn't even realize. And he later came up and you know emailed me and said, you know, Jane, um, this really his body should really be like this in this position. And, how, you know, my response was, well, great, Chris. You know, next time the person, someone dies in my movie, I'll know that. You know, what am I supposed to do about it now? And he said, well, you know, I can fix it. And I was just, I was stunned. I mean, I really, I was just floored. And I said, oh, I can't, it didn't even occur to me that he had the capability of actually rearranging a dead body. Bo- body parts, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just interesting. And, and, um, and and the fact that he went back and did it in like an hour and a half or two hours, I was like, oh, I see. These are the things he really, really likes to do. <laughs> and asking him to add rain is like it takes him a week because it's boring as all hell. And he's like, uh, okay, I'll give it to you. But the the stuff that had to do with the blood and the stuff that had to do with the bodies, he was on it and really creative and had a lot of solutions to problems that we actually ran into on set that were just um, – you know, things go wrong, mm-hmm. and, you know, props sometimes don't work, and, you know, while you're shooting and you're shooting fast, you spend a lot of time going, I will fix that in post. I will figure out how to fix that in post. Mm-hmm. And he fixed it in post, so I'm fairly impressed. Well, something you didn't have to fix in post is some beautiful cinematography by Cecilia Guerrero. And I know yeah. Cecilia trained with, she's worked with Roger Deakins, with Vilma Sigmund, with Lubeski. She has an incredible pedigree of mentors and teachers, and it shows with your cinematography. And you get to showcase the most beautiful parts of Malibu at the Great Spirits Ranch. Yeah, that set was just a little mini miracle. And, uh, you know, and definitely Cecilia just went. To town, I especially love because one of the things that I I really like layering in a shot. I really like when you see the the front of you know something that's happening on the surface, but in the back, in another room or behind something, there's something else going on. And I and I was really interested in how do we create that a little bit of suspense just out of the sheer way she would light the dark corners you know, or mm-hmm. not like them, and we talked a lot about that, but she just she just delivered that so beautifully, and there's a real sensitivity to her um, her lighting and uh, the way she sees women in particular. You know, it was also something that we were both very conscious of. Um, this, is a, this is a film filled with women mm-hmm. and attractive women, and um, but each with their own little foibles and their own little special qualities. And we wanted to make sure that everything that was interesting and lovely about them was present. From a storytelling purpose, it was important to me because they do sometimes act in less than likable ways. 
Um, and I, so I didn't want to, I, I wanted to make sure that, the, that, that when we saw them on screen, no matter how they were acting, there was a quality of likability there, even if it was just a visual mm-hmm. thing. And she did really, she was so conscious of it. She was great at calling and going, you know, Jane, uh, by the way, you know, we might want to watch the dark circles here or the, you know, <laughs> she just had this beautiful, beautiful eye. And, um, you know, we had actually worked together on Meth Head. She was my second camera. I shoot to camera all the time. And mm-hmm. she was my second camera operator. And there were times when she'd get what I needed. And then, you know, she'd say, you know, if, if you have everything you need, can I, do you mind if I just shoot some stuff? And I said, yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, feel free. Cause I'm, I'm fine with the coverage that we have over here. And she, when I got into editing, I realized that she had gotten me all this spe- these special little uh, storytelling pieces that um, really saved me in the editing room. And that was where I started thinking this could be a real relationship. And then on top of it, she's this beautiful person. Mm-hmm. And we got along really, really well. And uh, it was a real feeling of collaboration. And um, that's what I look for with everybody that I work with. And it doesn't always happen as easily or smoothly as, as you'd like. Her. Well, and something I know everybody is probably th- running through their mind right now with all the women on set, all the women behind the lens, in front of the lens. What was the bathroom situation like? Did, <laughs> we, did we have a bar situation of a line going around the ranch? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, and that nobody else actually, will ever ask we, you. What? That no one else will ever ask you. No, exactly. No, the, yeah, I have to say, strangely, thinking back on it, there was no line at the bathroom. <laughs> I think we only had one operating bathroom down in the main camp, and then um, base camp, all the, you know, all the actresses had, um, you know, there were trailers, so there were bathrooms up there, and there were also bathrooms up there for the crew. But you had to travel up there to get to them. You had to take a little, we had a little golf cart that ran back and forth. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm actually surprised, thinking back, that we actually didn't have long waits. But I personally, I think that, you know, when people get on the set, and this is going to sound strange maybe, but when you're on the set and you're working, you hold it. It's not strange. I mean, I spent enough years on production. I'd be out in, you know, in Indian Dunes on location, and that's exactly what you do. Yeah. And yeah, it, to some degree, you forget. You're like, oh, yeah, I have to pee. That's right. Uh, okay. Now, you know, when this scene's over. And you just, and then you just keep not to do, I have to say. <laughs> but, um, but it's still, I, I still think that's part of the reason because it's just nobody was, it wasn't overused. That we did have to clean it out afterwards. We were responsible for it. Was a, it was a bathroom that was on the set, you know, that belonged to the property. Oh, okay. You know, on septic. So we did have to. So you had you did ha- you were responsible for that, but no, that's always that's always a big question that women have every time they go somewhere. It's how long is the wait for the bathroom? So oh, I know, and especially because there's never enough bathrooms. That's you know, it's like you go to a, a club and they've got two stalls, and you know, it's not enough for the 500 people that are packed in the, the club. You, you know, know, one day, or the ar- women, I should say, one day an architect is going to realize that. I know. I don't, I don't know, know why they haven't. I don't know when they will, but... The <laughs> <laughs> now, you've got a really eclectic cast. You've got a great group of women here. How did you go about casting this film? Well, you know, it's interesting. Some of them are old friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And I actually wrote each of the roles in the film for 
a particular actress that I'm friends with. As we got closer to shooting, uh, some of the some of the actresses had to drop out or weren't available at the time. We once we set the start date, they just weren't available. And I found myself. I mean, it was a little bit frantic because I take my casting extremely seriously. And uh, with Method, I think I, I spent. To some degree, I spent about a month and a half casting because it wow. was spread out over a period of time. But I really, I really spend the time. And I had someone drop out. I replaced them. A couple other people dropped out. The person I replaced had to drop out. And I came back from Cannes with four lead roles unfilled Ugh. and uh, one day of casting to do it. And I cannot explain how it happened, but out of the small little group of each character that I auditioned, the perfect person walked in. It never happened. I mean, four perfect castings out of one day, and I cannot see anybody else playing those roles anymore, even though they were written originally for someone else. Yeah, and having having seen the film, the, the actresses embody the roles so beautifully. Yeah, they really do. You don't I mean, get uh, so often. You get the feeling sometimes an actress is cast, and it's like no, they just don't work in that role. I don't care how famous they are, or how good they might look, but there's something that doesn't gel with them with those character traits. That I never felt that with any of your castings here. Well, this is the thing because I think partly because I used to be an actor. I mean, I guess I would still consider myself an actor just because you never stop being one, but. Um, I, 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 like I said, I take the casting seriously. I'm not only, I, and one of the luxuries was, and, and, and the detriments is, I didn't cast any named people. I didn't play that game where I had, to, had a casting director that was going out and going, here's three actresses, and these will pull in a certain number, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's negative when you go to try to sell the movie. Distributors aren't so thrilled with that idea, and it really put us in a little bit of a bind for a while. But, but the, the, Luxury of that is I can actually look for people who have the essence of the character because I really believe that actors are their best when you are when you are asking them to tap their true essence. Mm-hmm. Which sounds weird considering these girls are all bitches and that's comp- oh that's uh, okay. We still we, have we have three more the three more that we can use. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that is that is complete you know complete uh, you know acting on their part because they're, but what was important to me was that their essence was likable, that you have this, you know, that you can, like I said, as long, along with Sessie's shooting of them and, and the way she made them look and the way the makeup artist made them look and the clothes and everything else, I wanted um, each person to feel all, all those pieces of them. I wanted you to see them immediately, make a judgment, but be able to quickly adjust as you learned a little bit about their underbelly. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, the best actors come in with that, and then you just find a way to um, allow them the freedom to let it rise to the surface. And these actors are all really, really good actors with great resumes and uh, have been working a long time. So I, I knew I, ha- I had good people to, uh, to bolster me. And it certainly does show on screen. So now this is VOD... And digital, where, where is this going to be come Friday? Right, yeah. Friday goes out everywhere on the Internet, well, lots of places on the Internet, like iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, uh, Hulu, 
I mean, we're we're a bunch of places on the internet, and then VOD. It's like Time Warner, Comcast, Uverse. There's about twenty of them, and every place we're releasing on Thursday mm-hmm. is on our website. Uh, it's uh, www.thecrazybitchesmovie.com. And then April 1st, we are releasing DVD and Blu-ray. Yay! Yeah, and we're going to put some extras on it, have some fun with it. And then um, sometime early May, we'll, we'll release internationally. These early releases are only for the U.S. and mm-hmm. Canada. Wonderful. Well, yeah. I am And then proud. maybe if we're lucky, we'll get a TV dealer do it too. We're playing... Um, Sci-Fi Madrid, sponsored by the Sci-Fi channel, so we're sort of hoping we'll get a deal out of that. Oh, well, I can't wait. And I'm so thrilled because when we talked the other day, you didn't have a date yet for DVD. So this is... Yeah, you inspired me. I'm glad I'm good for something. (laughs) See, you did. I was like, you know what? I think we really just need to commit to this and make it in a set of dates. I'm thrilled. <laughs> I'm th- well. Will you call back in on uh, in April to talk about the, the extras on the DVD? Yeah, you bet I will. Oh, terrific, Jane! Thank you so much. An absolute joy, and I will have a review on the film out before it comes out at the end of the week. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. I had a great time. Oh, so did I. Jane Clark, writer, director, Crazy Bitches Friday VOD digital. Everywhere domestically. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Talk to you soon then. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, we lived. My sound engineer isn't, he's not having a conniption fit back there. So that, that's a very good thing. But bef- we got a few minutes to go here today. And so before we go, I want to go back briefly to Big Hero 6 and our Oscar-nominated Don Hall and Chris Williams. Because... I got to ask them the all-important question. With the Oscars looming, what's up? How are you going to, like, wind down after Oscar, uh-huh. after everything's done, win, lose, or draw? <laughs> well, it's it's really just that. I mean, we it's it, working on one of these films is all-consuming. You pour everything you have, and you work with hundreds of people who are giving everything they have, and, and there's such an energy to it, and it's important, I think, to step away. And, and to really open yourself up to new ideas. And, and I think it's important to read. It's important to travel. And, make breakfast uh, for your kids. Make breakfast for your kids. And really not race back in the next thing. Just stay in tune and, and figure out what you're passionate about. Because this movie came from Don's passion for the genre. And I think what you don't want to do is put yourself in a position of racing to the next thing just to stay busy. You know? Yeah. And also, you know, talk to enough people. Because I've never taken, they, they always offer us sabbaticals. When you're, you're a department head or a director, mm-hmm. um, like a month, and uh, I've never taken one because I was always on to the next thing, and, and I have raced, you know, from one thing to another, and uh, it does kind of catch up with you creatively after a while, and, and um, so I want to take a, and I want I want to take enough of a break to start to get bored. You know what I mean? Because then you know you're ready to come back. Mm-hmm. You know, once you, because it, it takes a little bit to come down from something like yeah. this. That, that was like Chris said, we're just all, all encompassing, all in for three and a half years. That's all you talked about, all you thought about. Um, so you need to have enough time off to kind of leave that behind mm-hmm. and start to get intrigued by filling your days with doing something different and interesting and 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 be with your family. You know, because um, they sacrifice a great deal as well. Um, and then when you start to get kind of itchy and bored, then I think it may be time to come back. So, Well, a small technical glitch there that will be corrected when you see the video package later and maybe this afternoon on the archival audio. 
But not that we don't want to hear from Don and Chris twice, three times, four times. They're always good. But Chris had one, Chris Williams had one great post note about the Oscars, about winning and what it means. Well, we, we already win. I mean, we're already doing what we do for a living. You know what I mean? Like, we grew up drawing and That's loving cartoons, and loving animation. And now we actually work at Disney Animation. So I try not to lose sight of that when people are getting really caught up in, in awards mm-hmm. season. You know, it's, we're very lucky, yeah, for sure. And lucky indeed they are. And hopefully that luck will be with them come February 22nd at the Oscars. Next week, Greg will be back here. Chad Miller will be here. Josh Idakoff will be here. We'll be talking Oscars. We'll also be talking about McFarland USA, Kevin Costner's new movie. Anybody who watches the video this week, you'll see an assortment of visual aids here. In the coming weeks, you'll be meeting this lovely little man here, the Never Beast, also known as Gruff. Uh, And before I go today, I just want to give a shout out. A new filmmaker that hit me up, sent me a link to a film he's done, Troy McGatlin, Love and Teleportation. Any filmmakers out there, you want me to check out your film? Send it to me, info at movieshark.deblore.com. I'm happy to take a look, do a review, give you some thoughts. Uh, and tr- that's exactly what Troy's going to get for me uh, later tonight. So, that's it for this week. For Behind the Lens, I'm Debbie Lynn Elias. We'll see you next week. <laughs>